this is the schema I've been working off in, in my uh, opportunities to be with you uh, the, this day. We started last night talking about the importance of tomorrow and where one might be going. We talked for a little while, or I talked, and you were kind enough to listen about yesterday. I wish I could have split these two out and, and spent much more time on each one. I just kind of scratched surfaces there. Uh, you'll find a little bit more in the book Resilient Life, but there's so much to say about these things. And I, I just can't withstand the temptation to go back to the yesterday for a moment, because I was talking to two or three of you over this day who expressed more interest in that. Don't fall into the trap of thinking as a man or as a Christian or as a biblical person that yesterday is a relatively unimportant subject. Um, I don't think I mentioned this last night. Um, there are three things that happen when you get old. There's the first, the second, and the third is being forgetful. <laughs> but, but take seriously, for example, that in the book of Genesis, that the author spends something like six chapters on Joseph dealing with abandonment issues, weeping, uh, retching. It's an incredible story of a man trying to deal with his yesterdays. And he comes out the other end uh, forgiving his brothers, which is the beautiful resolution. But read also the attitude of the brothers with their yesterdays, how they're wallowing in guilt, blaming each other, assured that, he's going, that Joseph's going to kill them. And if you, if you want a good Bible lesson on the subject of yesterdays, those last six chapters are really powerful. So anyway, we looked at those two last night. In the early hour this morning, I looked at today and uh, some of the issues that I, I call, in, in, in this is a monastic word, the dailies, the things you concern yourself about each day in disciplinary ways. And now I want to attack this last subject, which to me fills the four-point outline. Um, I don't know how better way to say it except to use the word connections, which really means relationship. And to say bluntly at the beginning of this, of th this particular hour that I think one of the great biblical or great miscalculations of biblical people in, in our evangelical movement is the failure to understand that a huge part of the Christian life cannot be experienced outside the context of relationships. Now, what I just said to you is very important, for example, in my life story. When I was a child, one of our favorite choruses, which we sang, as I remember right, almost every week, went like this. I won't sing it. I'll give you the words. If you know the Lord, you need nobody else to see you through the darkest night. You can walk alone. You only need the Lord to keep you on the road marked right. Probably 15 years, I sang that over and over again until it convinced me that the Christian life is nothing more than Jesus in me. And then there came a moment in my life when I had to recognize how... That'll get your attention. When I came to the realization that the real true story of the gospel is Jesus and us. And that's part of what I'd like to, to bring out in this, this session. I first began to appreciate the nature of relationships when I was about three and a half years of age. Never thought about this for decades and decades and decades until recently I was looking at a picture of the home I lived in in my first three or four years of life out in Belrose, Long Island. My bedroom was on the second floor and it had a dormer window. And when I was about three and a half years of age, I was, it was a nice day, the window was wide open, I was up in my bedroom playing, I guess. And I suddenly felt nature's call. Now, there was a big decision to be made. The bathroom, where one would normally deal with nature's call, was about 25 or 26 feet away, which is a considerable distance if you compare it to the fact that the window is only about four <laughs> feet away. I, I see some of you know this story. <laughs> Well, I made the choice to go the short route and went over to the window, and I began to express myself. There was this lovely golden arch, which, by the way, most people don't know this, is where we got the brand for McDonald's arches. Uh, 
And then when it was all over, I recognized as I looked out the window at this great feat of mine that there's a sidewalk down below and there was this huge wet blotch on the sidewalk which could not be missed by anybody, especially by my father who chose just that moment to walk out the door. <laughs> he looked down at the blotch, he looked up at me, and he asked this question. Did you do that? I said, yes. He said, did you throw a glass of water out the window? What an amazing setup for a question. <laughs> and I, I did this for the first time in my life. I went. <laughs> and he said to me, don't ever do that again. Got in his car and drove off. For the first time in my life, I had lied successfully to my father. For the first time in my life, I had experienced a separation between him and me. For the first time, I was beginning to recognize he's a dad and I'm a son. He's a Donald, I'm a Gordon. And in that particular moment, my first beginnings of understandings that people are not just all one together, but are different individuals who need to build relationships began to happen. Christianity is a relational religion. You can't really understand it if you don't understand relationships. And we have all these particular verses. I'm looking down in my notes to see if I can give you some examples, and I'm not doing very well for the moment, to, to talk about all those ways in which Jesus, you know, he will say to the disciples, a fresh commandment, a new way of living I give to you, that you love each other. And what does that mean? In the way that I have loved you. We have to understand all over again, these disciples did not know how to love. Jesus comes along and has to teach them a whole new ethic of relationships. And if you will do this, he says, the whole world will know that you are disciples, people who follow me. There were other rabbis in those days whose brand was a certain theology. You memorize this, memorize that, interpret this, and the whole world will know you're my disciples by your words. There were other rabbis that taught people that the real core of their message was to join a militant army that was gonna overthrow the armies of Rome. They were military people, they were killers, terrorists, if you please. Then the savior comes along and he says, my brand is not necessarily in my theology, my brand is not necessarily in militaristic activity, my brand is in relationships, a unique way of loving each other. And by the way, that's been the sum total of my relationship to you over the last three years, disciples. I've been teaching you how to love one another by doing it by loving you myself. How did Jesus love those men? He picked them when no one else would have. He sunk his life into them. He taught them his message. He showed them piece by piece a new way of living. He rebuked them when rebukes were of necessity. Then he sent them out on his mission and had them do things using his name as the accreditation. And then he died for them. And finally he gave them his mission. No longer do I call you my servants because there was a time when you didn't know what I was about. Now I call you my friends. Greater works will you do than I am going to do. So why don't you go into all the world and make disciples in the same way that I made disciples of you? All of that is part of the loving agenda of Jesus. And down through the centuries, love became the number one accrediting point of the Christian movement. There's a wonderful book by uh, a sociologist of, from Baylor University called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark did some incredible research to discover that in the first three centuries of the Christian movement, the movement was less about preaching. That bothers me because I'm a preacher. Less about preaching and more about loving. The thing that expanded the gospel into the pagan world was seen in the way people loved each other, the way they served each other. Stark discovers that in those first three centuries, in every Roman Empire city on the basis average of 13 years, there was either a drought, a plague, a military conquest, a fire, or an earthquake. And when these travesties or tragedies happened, almost 50% of the city would be killed. 
The pagans would run for the hills to save themselves. The Christians would stay behind to nurse the sick and the dying, the widows and the orphans. And Stark finally says, no wonder the Christian movement grew. If you were one of those people who were loved by Christians, wouldn't you want to become a part of that movement too? E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist evangelist, will say at a later time, if the Christian community would relearn how to love, it would begin to expand again in an incredible rate. Well, all of that has had an impact upon me personally because I grew up in a dysfunctional home. My father and mother never should have gotten married. I knew from the earliest days intuitively that I was in a home filled with fear and conflict. Often, I was the one at the age of four, five, eight, nine, who had to come between my parents and mediate their disputes with each other. It's part of what made me an effective pastor for a while, I guess, because I became so used to knowing what's going on in a room, who was angry, who was sad, who needed help, who needed encouragement, who needed to be left alone. I knew all that stuff at the age of eight or 10 years of age. You had to learn that stuff if you grew up in the kind of home I grew up in. So the whole notion of what brings people together, what builds people in strength, what divides people, what allows people to overcome their faults and their flaws. That's always been at the center point of the way I have thought pretty much about everything. So it's part of my Christian life. And I wish that I could help other people to see the importance of that same thing. So these connections are important. Let, let me show you something that I think would be uh, helpful in, let's see if I can turn this up real quick, to define connections. What I tried to do one day was to take a look at all the possible connections that any of us would have in daily living experience, to try to plot them out and ask the question in each of these categories, what difference does a person who thinks Christianly, what difference do they make? What's required of them if they want to claim to the larger world, I am a follower of Christ? Well, this is my understanding of connections. And over the last few years, I've played with it and tried to expand it, but, but I keep coming back to what you're seeing on the screen, that fundamentally, day after day, these are the kind of relationships that each of us have. Now, if you look carefully at this display, you'll begin to notice that from the left-hand side to the right, there, there is descending, what should we call it? Descending intimacy, intensity. What I've started with is my feeling that the most important single human relationship, humanly speaking, is the relationship that two people will have in the embrace of marriage. There, there's no other relationship like it. I met Gail on February 17th of 1961. I was engaged to her in three weeks, married in four months. Uh, it's one of the few really important quick decisions I ever made in my life. But uh, that relationship started very, very quickly. And I can remember the months before the wedding, how we would sit and talk and dream and hug each other and all that kind of stuff uh, for hours and hours and hours. And then one day we walked an aisle and everything changed. Before that moment, if we had a particular a bruising moment of disagreement, I could drive her up to her apartment door and say, I'll, I'll call you. And then maybe wait for three or four days until she was really, really worried. But when you get married, you can't do that anymore. Every one of us in this room who's been married knows what it's like to be in marriage and to have one of those conflicts that come along, and you can't say, I'll call you in three or four days. You've got to crawl into bed with that woman that evening, and you're still mad at each other. And so you lay there in the darkness. Hopefully you have a big bed, but if you have a small double bed... <laughs> You lay there in the darkness, and you have to be very, very sure that no body parts touch. <laughs> because, it, because if either one of you touch each other, it's almost going to demand that somebody say something. And you lay there, and, and both of you pretend that you're asleep, but you're as wide awake as you've been in a year. <laughs> and all you have to do is say out into the darkness, you know, I'm sorry. I really screwed up. Let's push the reset button and get this thing solved. And you'll be in each other's arms in about four seconds on most occasions. That's what marriage is all about. 
It, it's a relationship that has to be sustained. And if you're a biblical person, you're ready to say it's a marriage that lasts forever and ever and ever this side of heaven. Now, that doesn't work for, most, uh, for a lot of people, but, but that's the ideal. That's the idea. Then the next relationship in declining uh, intensity is the family. I discovered over the years that a lot of people mistake marriage and family and combine them together, but they're two separate relationships. A family may exist for a long time, but it keeps morphing as the children get older. Our two children, married, are now 50 and 53 years of age. They've got grandchildren who are just finishing college, or I've got grandchildren. So the family has morphed over these years. It's changed a lot. I remember when our, our little daughter, Christy, who, who I just, I can't tell you how much I love this little girl. And when she was three and four years of age, we had a tradition at the end of every dinner, she would leave her seat and she would come over to where I was sitting at the table. She'd climb up onto my lap, put her arms tightly around me, and we would whisper sweet little things into each other's ear. We did that months and months and months, years and years. And one of the things that she would say to me again and again, oh, daddy, Daddy, I'll never leave you. I'll always be here for you. I'd say, sweetheart, you can't always be here. Someday you're going to leave your dear old dad. Some handsome man's going to come along, and he's going to love you, and you're going to start loving him, and he's going to take you away from me. No, Daddy, that'll never happen. I said, it's going to happen. She said, if that man comes along, he will live with us. <laughs> well, he came along, and she left. <laughs> So, so family really grabs our intensity for about 20, 22 years of life, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter, but, but, but it's not the same as, as marriage. Then there are what I want to call, you'll notice on the screen, capital F friends. This is a very small group of people that over a period of time, you could say, we pledge ourselves to, not unlike a marriage relationship, and they pledge themselves to us. And, and this little group of capital F friends are, 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 are defined by the fact that we know each other's hearts. It's a different relationship than I have with my wife. Sometimes I'll say to Gail something and she'll look at me with, and her eyes will roll and she'll say, why don't you men ever grow up? But if I say the same thing to my capital F friends, they'll say, I know, I know, I've been thinking about that all the time. So, so, so my capital F friends are men. I never thought about the importance of capital F friends until I was about 42 or 45 years of age. When I came to a moment where life came very, very close to completely crashing, and my realization that if I had had some capital friends in those days who knew my heart, what happened would never have happened. So I set out in my mid-40s to do what some men have done wisely a lot long before that. I set out to make five or six really, really good, what I came to call capital F friends. I have those friends today. I've had them now for 30 years. Those men who are my capital F friends are praying for me right now, this morning. They know where I am. They have my schedule. And when I get home, within an hour or two of my homecoming, the phone will start ringing, and my capital F friends will be on the other end. Gordon. How did it go down there at Sandy, Sandy Cove? Did those guys treat you well? Did you feel the spirit of God? Because we were praying. What do you think about the weekend? That's what capital F friends are likely to do. And by the way, it's not a one-way street. I'm also calling them as often as they call me. So there are my capital F friends. Then there's another kind of relationship which we have. This one doesn't last as long, and it often comes to a conclusion at some point. It's what I would call the coach-player relationship. Some of you would prefer the mentor-mentee relationship. And there's other terms that can be given. I've gotten a little bit tired lately of the word mentor, so I went back to this old word because a mentor is really a coach. And the person that the mentor mentors is a player, a coach and a player. Because I had such a dysfunctional family, my father and I were pretty much estranged from the earliest years. I don't remember many warm times with my dad. But what seemed to happen, and I think this was a grace of God, is that heaven began to send into my world 
godly men, and on occasion, a couple or two, who fit the occasion and became a father substitute for me. I remember my first coach at the age of seven, who treated me as a small boy with great dignity, sat down and talked with me, asked me questions, listened to my opinions. It was wonderful to have a person like that in my life. When I was a high school athlete, I had a coach, and I've written about him in the book Resilient Life. He was a coach, and I was the player. He salted into my head all kinds of principles and understandings that helped me to face the world I was in in those days. When I went off to the university and to graduate school, there were some other mentors who taught me things about life that I'd not learned in the normal sorts of way. We had a couple that lived down the street from where my college apartment was. They were probably 15 years older than me. They invited me one evening to come to their house for dinner. I went and I sat at the table and I began to listen to the conversation about this husband and wife. I couldn't believe the way these two people talked to each other. The respect, the curiosity, the humor, the encouragement, the counsel that went back and forth between these two. I'd never seen this before. I didn't know that men and women could talk on this level so meaningfully, so effectively to each other. At the end of the evening, they invited me to come back in another week, and I instantly said yes. And I had the same experience, sitting at their table, watching this incredible dynamism of relationship. Before long, they were inviting me to come every night of the week. And I just kind of took up residence in their home each night at dinner time. And this went on for months and months. And each time, I watched these people. And I remember saying to myself one night, if I ever get married, I want a woman just like her. And if I ever get married, I want to be a husband just like him. A year later, I met Gail. And I can tell you that largely the model of our marriage over these years has been built on what I saw in that home night after night during those days. That's how coach-player relationships work. I had another coach who taught me something about the basic rudiments of the responsible adult male life, how to balance my checkbook, how to clean the bathroom each time I'd used it, how to hang up my clothes, how to make my bed, how to be a man of his word, how to keep my promises, all things I needed to learn later in life than most young men learned them. Where did I learn them? From a coach who invested himself in me. My last coach died just four years ago at the age of 96. He was a coach in my life for over 50 years. I made a decision early in my adulthood that I would try to become as much like him as I possibly could. And I watched him over and over and over again with the pure intent to imitate everything I saw about him that I thought was godly and good. One of the greatest compliments anybody can give me is when somebody in an audience know, knew him and knows me and they come up afterwards and they'll say, you know, when you said that, I saw Vernon in you. And I feel so warmed because I'm carrying on the tradition of the coach in that relationship. Then each of us has relationships with what I would call communities of choice. These are groups of people. And my own theory, as I observe and as I experience, is that probably most of us cannot have more than three of these kind of communities operational at any time. You might think that the first community is the group of people you work with in the company where you're employed. These are people that you're with 40, 50 hours a week. You talk constantly, you email, you, and, and, and a friendship develops of a type. But the friendship is always defined by the working relationship of the organization that you're associated with. And one of the interesting tests is if that organization goes belly up, if it lays off a bunch of people and you're one of them, then all these friendships, most of them anyway, begin to dissolve. You may send anniversary cards or birthday cards, make a, a one, once every few months phone call. But basically, the relationship ends when the organization ends. Another community of choice can be our church congregation. You can belong to a church of 200 people or 2,000 or more, and you look across and you, you know a lot of people. Uh, but uh, 
it's all built upon the ramifications of the purposes of that organization. We really don't know each other that well, but it's an important community. A third possible community is something in my community where I, I contribute my labor or my money and I become associated with a group of people who are deeply concerned about homeless people, illiterate children, or uh, problems with drugs. You name all of the possibilities. So who are the communities of choice that get my loyalty? Now notice the word friends repeats itself, but now with a small f. Research shows that I can have about six or eight capital F friends, and I can have about 175 small f friends. These are people whose names I know. I probably know where they live, but I may never have been in their home. We may occasionally go out to lunch together, do a picnic in the summer, go to a ball game together as a group when we have some tickets. Uh, and, and we really like these people. And we help each other paint a roof or, or put a, uh, paint a wall or fix a car or something like that. But we don't know each other's hearts. We don't feel the freedom to really open our lives to each other and talk about our, our secrets. They're just there, and they're part of our loving, uh, uh, larger living conditions. Then there are my neighbors. These are people who move in with each other uh, in, in the same block, and we say hi to each other if, if we don't have electronically controlled garage doors. Uh, we help each other shovel out in the middle of the winter. Up in New England, we love our neighbors at, at Blizzard Day. We help each other, and we have a great, great time shoveling each other out and then we say, you know, we need to get together more. This has been a lot of fun, but we don't see each other for another year again. But that's the relationship of neighbors. Then the Bible has a couple of other interesting relationships which very few of us ever think about. The Bible has a lot to say about my relationship to my enemies. Remember that in the biblical times, there were tribes and clans and families and cities and towns and blood feuds of all kinds were very, very normal. And they were all over the place. In those days, a lot of these conflicts were settled by mayhem, by killing. If you saw a member of another tribe that was your enemy out on the road, it was your obligation to kill that person. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, you get this whole idea when Lamech says to his wife and his daughters, a young man has injured me, but I have killed him, and my family line will kill his family line 77 more generations. That's what you call the spirit of vengeance, and it's alive and well in large parts of our world today. It's what fuels most of the Middle East conflicts. They cannot forget what their enemies have done, and therefore there is a responsibility to kill each other. Now imagine how radical it is when Jesus walks into this world 2,000 years ago and says, you must love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. You and I, we, well, what a nice thing for Jesus to say. No, what he said could have gotten him killed for saying it. That was an incredibly important principle to people. Kill your enemies. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he's calling for a total reversal in cultural orientation. To buy into the Christian faith is to say, I will not have enemies. Then there's the stranger. And in a world like that, where there are no maps and there are no recorded roads, uh, for the most part, and trails, strangers were always coming in and out of each other's lives. How do you treat the stranger? Now we have the biblical idea of hospitality. If the stranger comes to the door of your tent late in the afternoon, you are responsible to give him a meal and lodging, and by the way, to give them the very best of what you've got. There was this whole ethic and morality of the treatment of strangers. And the Bible talks about the importance of our treating strangers. Now, I don't want to get too political, but let me tell you. If you want to call yourself a biblical person, you better read up on the biblical teaching on enemies and strangers, because it's going to do something to your view of, of immigration and some of the principles that our country is dealing with these days. The Bible speaks to this stuff. 
It's just that a lot of people don't know that. So as you look across that stream, you can see that you probably can find the people in your world in one of those categories or more. Now here would be my suggestion to you. Sometime in the next days or weeks, when you've got a free hour or two, take a piece of paper out and reproduce this kind of schemata. And then start writing in, as well as you can, who are the people who populate each of these boxes. When you get to small F friends, you're probably going to run out of room, so don't sweat that one. You get some samples there. But, but, but put the people in your world in their appropriate box. Then ask yourself the question, in each of these situations, with each of these groups of people, how am I doing? Where are the places where I'm not acting Christianly, where I'm allowing destructive feelings to capture, as I illustrated last night in my own world? Where are the places where there's strength? Who is it that offers something to me and me to them out of that particular category? We, we really need, I don't want to get too methodological about this, but we really need to know where we stand in the relationships of the people around us because that is a deep and powerful part of the Christian way of life. And then it's good to share this stuff with a spouse and to compare notes on where we stand with these things. And to recognize sometimes we have some work to do. Let me offer this little theory. That if there's something wrong in any one of these boxes, it will in some way affect all of the relationships in all the other boxes. So that compounds the significance of the relational work of the man who would be Christian. Now for the last few minutes... I want to take just one of these categories and speak to it with a little bit more detail. I want to talk to you about capital F friends. This could be a marriage seminar and we could have a lot of interest in talking with each other about our relationships to spouses, but, but not everybody in this room is married and so let's save that for another time. We could make this a family seminar, but every one of us in this room has or should have capital F friends. And if we don't have them, then it's appropriate to ask the question, why? Let me tell you something about capital F friends and how we could identify them. Let me give you some questions and see how you do in the answer to each of these questions. And it will give you an idea of something I've had to do in my own world as I've identified my capital F friends. Who do you turn to when you need wisdom? There are those moments in life when none of us are smart or perceptive or intuitive enough, intuitive enough to solve our own questions or our own problems. And we need perspective. We need somebody's wisdom. Who are the friends you would turn to with the assurance in your own heart and mind that when you get an answer from this person, you're tapping something from the wellsprings of wisdom from a capital F friend? Here's another question. Who are the people in your world who help or come alongside of you without being asked? They know you so well that they, they know what your needs are, what your questions are, what your concerns are. You don't have to call them up and beg them to come into your life at that moment. They just know you well enough that this is a moment when they need to come alongside. Who are those people? You would admit with me that those kind of people, that's the product of a real, long, powerful kind of relationship. Who speaks truth to you when you're wrong? This may be one of the most important questions that a lot of people miss in 21st century Christianity. We all need a few people who will look us square in the eye and tell us what we need to hear that we are in denial about, that we are resisting, that we are blaming, that we are accusing, and there's this friend who comes along and says, you know, you're missing something here and you need to think about it. And your response is, even though this is painful, I thank you for telling me what you've said. That's what you call a rebuke. Many, many years ago when I was a young man, I was invited to go to Japan with another older man who was in that point a coach in my life. And we went on this preaching mission together. 
One afternoon when we had some time off, we were walking down the streets of some Japanese city and the name of a third person came up in our conversation, somebody that we both knew. And I said something about that person that was very mean. It was, it was mean-spirited. It was, it was nothing like what a Christian ought to say at all. And my friend stopped immediately and he turned toward me and he put his face about a foot away from mine. And he said in a very quiet but determined voice, Gordon, a man who says he loves God would not speak that way about a friend. I gotta tell you, those words hurt. If he'd stuck a dagger in my ribs, it wouldn't have been more painful. But you know what? He was right. And for the last 30 years, or 35 years, Every time I am tempted to say something that diminishes another human being, know them or not, I hear that rebuke as if it was given to me freshly yesterday. That rebuke has saved me 10,000 times over from making a jerk of myself. I have a lot of faults, but one thing I don't normally do in these days is speak ill of other people. Why? Because one man loved me enough on that afternoon to rebuke me. My wife has had to rebuke me on many times. The man who introduced the two of us, a very godly man, when he found out that we were gonna get married in such a short period of time, he took me out to lunch two weeks before the wedding. He said, Gordon, God has given you a thoroughbred of a woman to marry. When I quote that, Gail, if she's in the room, always says, yeah, that's what every woman wants to be known as, as a thoroughbred. <laughs> and I always say, but that's guy talk. That's the way men talk to each other. So he says, God has given you a thoroughbred of a woman to marry. Then he goes on. He means to say many things to you through her. And then he took his finger and he put it right almost on my nose. And he said, three times, listen to her, listen to her, and then very loudly, listen to her, because you're not a good listener. He was right. If I had married Gail without that statement, I have no doubt that given my conceit and my arrogance in those days, I would have blown Gail off time after time after time with the attitude, hey, I'm the man in this family. I know the answers. I don't need you to tell me what to do. But that capital F friend set me straight. And over the years, I've not done it perfectly, I'm embarrassed to say. But almost every time Gail weighs in with a suggestion or a thought or a rebuke, I hear all over again in the back of my head, 55 years ago, listen to her. It may be God speaking to you. Do you listen to your wife? Do you give her a chance to offer her opinions? Or do you always have to be right? Rebukes are not always bad things. Some years ago, I was in a conversation with a, a a so-called Christian leader, if I mentioned him, most of you would know his name. And as we talked, we had a disagreement about something. It wasn't a harsh disagreement. It was just two brains working from different perspectives. And as we, we heated up this conversation a little bit, suddenly he said to me, you know, Gordon, I think there's a root of bitterness in you. Well, he had no way of knowing that he could not have leveled me with a comment that was more nasty than that. My father was a bitter man. He was an angry man. I felt that anger over and over again. I swore up and down when I was a young person. I would never be a bitter or an angry person. So for this man to say that day, I detect a root of bitterness in you. He had no idea how completely this just knocked me to the floor. And all I could say to him is, well, I think we need to terminate this conversation and I'm promising you that I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna think about what you just said. And I did. 
but I gathered my capital F friends around me when I got home, and I said, I've just come from this conversation. I said this, he said that, I said this, he said that, and then he said, there's a root of bitterness in you. And I said to these men, I need for you to get together sometime this next month, and I'd appreciate it if you would go over the last two or three years of our friendships together. I'd appreciate it if you would talk about everything you remember, about my reaction to circumstances and situations, every story I've ever told. And if you can find any hint of anger or bitterness resident in me that I'm not seeing, I need for you to tell me about it so I can take corrective action. A month went by. Apparently, these men did meet two or three times. They did exactly what I asked them to do. And then they called me one day and said, it's time for a meeting. And at the appropriate moment, one of the guys said, Gordon, we've talked upside, one down, upside and downside, everything we could remember about the last two or three years. We've done exactly what you told us. For. We search for any hint of bitterness in you or anger. And we need to tell you unanimously, there is no bitterness in you that we have ever seen. There is no extended anger. The man was 100% wrong. You need to know that. That's what you call a rebuke in reverse. That's your friends releasing you, saying to you, we see in this area of your life something that's good. We see the life of the Lord in you. We encourage you to keep on going the way you're going. Don't let this person stop you. That's what happens when people speak truth into life when you're right or wrong. Who challenges you to think and to grow? Are there any men in your life where you talk about things like books, about prevailing issues in the larger world, about matters of faith, people who are not afraid to disagree with you? I am very, very disturbed about our Christian community these days because I find myself becoming more and more fearful about what I can say to people and not say. You walk into a room, well, I can't bring this subject up to them and I can't say this to them and I can't give them my opinion there and I'm not sure I want to hear their opinion in this area because you never know whether people are thinking and growing. You, you never know how it's going to match up. Where do we have friendships where we can give our opinions and know that they're going to be safe and we're not going to be gossiped about? Where people are going to recommend thinkers and writers and even the arts, whether it's the cinema or the art museum or other places, places challenging us to go to enlarge our lives to become a bigger, better person than we were when the conversation began. Who listens to your hopes and dreams and encourages you to move ahead? I can't tell you how many times I've had the experience, and I know friends of mine have had the experience. You have an idea. It's a crude idea. It's a rough idea, but it has possibility. And in a moment, you dare to expose your idea to somebody, and what do they do? They laugh at you. They tell you why you're wrong, why it will never work. Oh, somebody else did that a year ago. And you walk away despondent. Your idea has been crushed. Who listens and takes a positive attitude and encourages you to move ahead and to explore possibilities? Even at the end, it doesn't work out. But someone's encouraged you to move ahead. Forgive me if I'm talking too much about my marriage, but that was probably one of the very first things that made me fall in love with Gail. In, in, in a matter of a day or two of the time I met her. She was the first person of my age who sat and listened and talked and engaged with me and, and, and saw value in the dreams that I had to serve the Lord. I remember over and over again driving away from our times together saying, she believes in me. She's really ready to, to, to pitch in and make these things happen. When you meet somebody like that, your love for them explodes overnight. So who listens to you and who encourages you along the way? Who's quick to forgive when you've behaved poorly? 
almost every one of us have had the experiences of a time when we have blown it, when we've done something wrong, when we've said something that shouldn't have been said, and you write off a friend or two who have no rubber room, if you please, to allow you a little bit of grace in the moment when you screwed up. I am very thankful that in my life there have been capital F friends who, when I have had my bad moments, have always been there to extend the gift of grace. Who sticks with you even when you have differences of opinion? And this goes back to previous remarks. They don't need to be repeated a second time. But the love of some people for others bothers me when I, when I see people who can't hold back uh, in disagreeing with each other about, and, and in these days it, it's the whole political arena, where do you go to test your opinions and be heard and listen to other people? Who's the one who carefully guards your confidences? Occasionally there's a moment when we have to say something to somebody and know it's never going to go a foot further than them. Who are those people in your world? Who encourages you in down moments? When you've lost your confidence? When you've fallen into a, a drop of, of, of doubt? When you're not sure that God is as faithful as you thought he was? Who do you say that stuff to? Who do you speak out to? Who will listen and give a gentle answer? With whom do you laugh and have fun? You've heard enough about that already in the earlier hour. People who don't have to be serious 100% of the time, but just enjoy knowing each other better and bringing out the joy in one another. Two or three more. Who would defend you if somebody lied about you or misrepresented you? Who would stick up for you in your absence? Who would intercede to God with you on your behalf? The older I've gotten, the more I recognize the importance of having people around me who will lift me to the Lord in my presence and beyond it and, and when I'm not there. The very first thing I did this morning, and this is very, very normal in my world, well, after I went to the bathroom, <laughs> the very first thing I did was to pick up my cell phone and call Gail. And the very first thing the two of us did together after just a, a brief word or two about how the night had gone was, Gail said to me, you've got a long morning. Let me pray for you. And the two of us prayed together this morning by phone. That happens every time I'm on the road. It's been going on for years. To have someone who intercedes with God on your behalf. I had the privilege this morning at breakfast time of sitting with Bill Butterworth for a while. It meant so much to me at the end of our conversation when he lifted me to the Lord. We all need friends who without reluctance or shame will do that sort of thing. Who would come to your side in a catastrophic moment when you lost a spouse, when you lost a job, when you get bad news? Who are the people you want in the room? You need to answer that question. Here's one more. Who inspires you to be loyal to Jesus? This is an important question. To have one or two people in our world who are unafraid amongst all the other conversation to bring the name of Jesus into the converse. And to inspire us so that we say, when I leave that person, I always feel a little bit more committed to the purposes of God in my life. There you have a way of identifying your capital F friends. And my proposal to you, gentlemen, would be, if you don't find people who fit those questions, then maybe one of the most important things you can do in the coming months is to search out the kind of people who would be able to be answers to those questions. I said earlier that I have about six of those capital F friends. Back a few years ago, I took some of them to Switzerland for a week of hiking. These are three of my capital F friends. They're basically about my age. 
The man on the left side of the screen, the tall guy in the white T-shirt, was for many, many years a vice president for strategic long-range planning for Sylvania GTE. When Ground Zero or 9-11 happened, and Gail and I spent the first week there in the wreckage of Ground Zero with the firefighters and the policemen, I came away from that experience with a dream to create an auxiliary force that could stand with the Salvation Army in moments of great disaster. I shared my dream with this man, Al McLeod. Al said, you know, I'd give myself to that in a day. I introduced him to some of the top people in the Salvation Army here in the Northeast. They just loved him instantly. And over the last 15 years, Al McLeod recruited 400 volunteers in New England, supervised their training, wrote a 300-page disaster manual response memo. And today, while we're sitting, well, it's Saturday, if it was a business day, you'd find Al McLeod working eight, nine hours a day, free of charge at the age of 78 for the Salvation Army in the Northeast Territory of our country, working on disaster planning and being a coach to younger Salvation Army officers. The Salvation Army loves me because I gave them Al McLeod. The man on the right, Dave Ryder, in the light blue shirt, has owned his own business for years. I challenged him a number of years ago to, to, to sell his business and to spend the last 20 years of his life doing all kinds of Christian work. He's done exactly that. He was the executive pastor of our church for 10 years. He now is the chairman of the board of a microfinance organization. Two days a week, he supervises a hospitality parlor at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's made something of the last 25% of his life. The man in the middle is Al Napolitano. He was the chief financial officer of a major Boston corporation. He retired early to do the books for five small nonprofits in the Boston area that couldn't have afforded the kind of financial acumen that he gave to them. These have been three of my closest friends. I love to be with them. There's nothing that we can't talk to about with each other. On this particular day you're seeing on the screen, we are over Grindelwald in Switzerland. We've taken the lift up to the top of the mountains. We've been walking for about an hour, and we have come to a, a junction in the pathways. If we go to the right, we will be down in the valley at our hotel in about an hour and a half to take naps, which men of our age should probably do. <laughs> if we go to the left, as those yellow signs you see uh, pointing in different directions, we will have a four, about a four-mile trail that's very, very steep, a little bit dangerous, but incredibly beautiful. Which are we going to do? It's noontime. Well, the testosterone, what's left of it, <laughs> is, uh, is running. And so we unanimously decide to take the hard pathway. And we start down it. We go about an hour. Now, you have to understand on this pathway, there's nobody else around. There are no buildings. There's no commercial establishments. There's no communication. You are on your own. Suddenly, the man in the middle of this picture sinks to his knees. He looks up at us and he says, guys, I don't think I can take a step further. I am totally exhausted. And we're listening because a few years before, he'd had a four-way bypass. So we all sit in the dirt with our friend Al, and about an hour, maybe 45 minutes passes by. And finally, I said to the other two guys, you know, I, I'm aware that about two and a half, three miles down the path, there's a, a small mountain hotel. And if you guys went on the way, and, and you might be able to get rooms for us, and we can spend our night on the mountain while Al gets rested up. So they started on their way. And after a short while, I said to my friend Al, the guy in the middle, Al, I got an idea. Let's walk 100 steps together, and then we'll rest until you're ready. And when you're ready, we'll walk another 100 steps. And when you're ready and you're rested, we'll walk another 100 steps. And maybe we can get to where we need to go by the time the sun goes down tonight at 7 o'clock. Al said, I can do that. So I pull him up, and he links his arm through mine until it's like a father and a daughter getting ready to go down the aisle of a wedding. 
we're as tightly together as we possibly can be. And we walk the first hundred steps and we rest. And after Al is ready, we walk a seven, another hundred steps. And as we walk, I say things to Al like, Al, you're a brave man. You've got courage coming out of your ears. You can do this. A hundred steps and rest. Al, let me sing this song into your ear that we've sung all of our lives. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. A hundred steps and rest. Al, let me pray this prayer for you. And I speak to God on my friend's behalf. A hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. Al, tell me the story again of how you met your wife, Lena, and how you fell in love with each other. A hundred steps and rest. Al, tell me about the day you won the 400-meter championship at Boston Garden in the Winter Games. Al tells me the story. A hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. Al, tell me when you came to Jesus. And he gives me the story. A hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. I have never loved a man as much as I loved Al that afternoon. It was not a romantic love. It was not the homophobic issue that so many people want to degenerate to these days. It was just the, the pure brotherly love of one man for another, brothers in the Lord. I could literally feel the energy going out of my body into his. I could feel the courage he was gaining as he hived off my courageous system. And around 7 o'clock that night, we made our destination, 100 steps at a time. And every time Al and I were together from that moment forward, there had to be room in the conversation to go back and remember the afternoon we walked the trail 100 steps at a time. And each time he would thank me, and each time I would tell him how much of a courageous blessing he had been to me. Then one day, Al called me. You and Gail got to come over. I need to tell you something. We went over to the home that he and Lena lived in. We sat down and he said, I've been to the doctor. I have a cancer that isn't going away. They think I won't make it for another year. And he looked at me and he said, it looks like another 100 steps and rest issue. I need you at my side. About a year later, Al went to be with Jesus. The other two guys and their wives and a few others stood around the open grave after everybody else left. We told the Lord he was getting one of his better saints. We reminisced about all the things this man had meant to us. We said a few more prayers, we sang a few more songs, and then we walked away. And I thought to myself, this is what friendships were meant to be. This is what every man who names the name of Jesus needs to have. And so my question to you today as we end these sessions, for the morning anyway, who are your special F friends? What's the condition of your key relationships? Are you a source for other people of Christ's strength? These are some of the most important questions we can ask. So my faith is structured on how I look at tomorrow and Jesus' presence in it. My faith is structured on how I repair yesterday and draw strength from it where Jesus was. My faith is structured on the kind of man I determine by discipline to be today. My faith is structured by the support I get from the people around me. I get from them and they get from me. And if those four aspects of faith are in place and working well, I have a pretty good sense of assurance that I will be a resilient person. May God find many of those kind of men in this room as the years go by. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for my privilege of being with these brothers, for their generosity in allowing me to unload things in my own heart. But now, Lord, my prayer is for them. 
I know that in a room like this, filled with this many men, there are some who are seated here and who are heartbroken. Men who are confused and discouraged. Men who feel betrayed and cheated. Men who are facing questions for which there seems to be at the moment no answers. And I'm sure I could name 25 other categories. I also recognize, Lord, there are men here who are in the process of becoming holy people, saints, brothers of Christ, men who are gifted, men who are leaders, men who are godly. And the rest of us, Lord, are somewhere in between those two extremes. So I pray, Lord, that this weekend will be a powerful, powerful engine of renewal and commitment for many. And that when we leave here, we will have heard what you have to say into each of our hearts. Keep us from sin. Keep us in the holy pathway. Keep us as men who reflect the loveliness of Jesus in all that we are and do. This is my prayer for my friends and for myself. Amen.